The following program is being brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com. The World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. We all know about the lost cause, the romanticized notion that brave Confederates were fighting for states' rights or lower tariff or agrarian values or something, anything other than human slavery. In the 20th century, the lost cause seemed to win the battle for historical memory of the Civil War. But in the 19th century, there was one organization whose members fought the lost cause after the war, just as they had fought the Confederates during the war. They were the Union veterans of the GAR, and we'll learn about their story today from Professor Barbara Gannon, author of The Wan Cause, Black and White Comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic. That's today on Civil War Talk Radio. Follow us on Twitter at World Talk Radio. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's World Talk Radio. Want to know what's going on behind the scenes with your favorite World Talk Radio network host? How about what's new with our network? Make sure you check out the iRadio blog, a look at what's hot at World Talk Radio and beyond. Visit www.iradioblog.com today. Get the inside scoop on every channel on our network, including breaking news, featured guests, blog posts from our hosts, and much more. Make sure you sign up for our newsletter for even more inside action. Visit iradioblog.com today and stay connected. Listen. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you on a beautiful Friday afternoon in February 2013. Whenever you may be listening, today is February 15th. That sounds right, 15th, 2013. Speaking to you from high atop the third of the four floors of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University, a part of the University of North Carolina system located in Greenville, North Carolina, USA, but not speaking on behalf of the university or its departments or its uh, state government or anybody else, just me, and I know our guest will certainly speak likewise for herself today. Well, it is a, a, uh, nice day, good day to be talking about Civil War materials. I'll be doing so again tomorrow if you're in the North Carolina area at the State Archives, 1 p.m., uh, in downtown Raleigh, North Carolina, talking, uh, about a uh, topic not unrelated to today's discussion, uh, who who freed who, the Emancipation Proclamation and the 13th Amendment, one or the other of those. I'm not sure which is actually in the title of the talk, but they're both in, in the talk. So if you're around uh, this part of the country, come on by. And if not, stay where you are. Keep downloading shows. We've got new ones coming up 
Uh, next week, Tony Horwitz joins us to talk about John Brown, the subject of his most recent book, and also about uh, Confederate reenactors and the lost cause in general, as he describes so colorfully in his book, Confederates in the Attic. Uh, the following week, on March 1st, we'll have Doug Batson talking about General D.H. Hill. Uh, he presents the story of D.H. Hill in first-person uh we don't like to call it impersonation, but that's the style. So we'll hear about the life of a D.H. Hill presenter. Then it'll be spring break. Get the multicolored drinks with umbrellas in them, uh, lie down in the sand, and uh, listen to an old show because I won't be doing Civil War Talk Radio on March 8th as ECU goes away for a little while. That's actually the last day of classes uh and we will be still away on March 15th. Whether we'll have a show then remains to be seen. Uh, hopefully I can line someone up and, and clear my schedule, but we'll, we'll see about that. Then there is no show the next two weekends, unfortunately. Uh, March 22nd is uh, another conference here at East Carolina on the 300th anniversary of the Tuscarora War. So if you want to venture out of the Civil War comfort zone and learn about this uh, landmark event in North Carolina, Indian-English relations. Come by and find out all about it. March 29th is Good Friday. The university closes down in the afternoon on that day in blatant disregard of the separation of church and state, so uh, I won't be in the office. And we'll be back in April with lots of new shows. You can find out all about this and everything else regarding the show on impedimentsofwar.org, the Civil War talk radio companion website. Thanks always to Mark Gaffney, webmaster, who keeps things going there. Uh, Mark has also been working with our corporate overlords at World Talk Radio to modify the the actual home website where the real work of the show is done. Uh, Chad, our engineer, and the other people who actually make the show happen are located at World Talk Radio, and uh, we appreciate everything they do. Their website is being upgraded, or at least our, our chunk of it, our corner of it, uh, with new information, and Mark is, is working on their staff with that. So uh, you can go there, download the shows directly from them, and and hear more about what we're up to. If you want to support the show, feel free to uh, contribute uh, for the modest sum of $25. I'll be happy to send you a copy of one of my books, uh, the titles of which I repeat every week, so you'll have to listen to last week's show if you're new to find out what they are. But uh, if you're a veteran, you may already have them. You can still send $25, and I'll send you nothing but my sincere thanks. In the past, there were times... In, in terms of blatant commercialism on the show, when I tried to uh, uh, get people to buy from outside sources a copy of All for the Regiment, we did an experiment this way. It must have been five years ago now to see how far we could move the needle on the Amazon sales ranking. Uh, All for the Regiment is somewhere in the millions and millions, like McDonald's hamburgers, billions perhaps, uh, somewhere way down the list. But at the time, it was still relatively new. And the experiment was to see if we could get like three or four listeners to buy a copy in one week, how many thousands of places would we jump? And it was quite successful. It went above 100,000 for the first time uh, in a long time, or below 100,000, down to like 70,000 in, in best-selling. 
I don't want to take advantage of your goodwill listeners uh, again and ask you to do that, uh, although you're welcome to send money, of course. But I have learned, uh, again, from our, our crack web staff that the show now has uh, fans on Facebook uh, to the total number of 192. So this won't cost you anything. Go onto Facebook, find impedimentsofwar.org, and uh, uh, like it and see see how that does. Let's see how if we can actually get that from 192 up to say 197 in just one week. Uh, so everybody go uh, like the Facebook page and we'll see what happens if you want to. Uh, the uh, one last thought on that regard. I'm able to look at statistics of uh, the web page. And in late January, there was a, a spike in which lots of people suddenly looked at it, beginning on a, a Sunday. It wasn't even the same day as the show. Maybe the show was archived that day. Uh, but interest in the web page went way up. And I don't know if, if perhaps our webmaster went to a party and told some people about it or how how it went up so dramatically. Viral, 200 is not exactly viral, but it, it it went way up from a small number to a larger number uh, with no apparent connection to anything within the show. One never knows. But go ahead, like us on Facebook, and uh, let's see what what effect this appeal has. It will be interesting to find out. But enough modern technology. Uh, it is time to get back to the 19th century and talk about uh the memory of the Civil War in a book that looks at some looks at uh, well, it looks at something new every week. It's a it's a, a question: Who's got something new to say about the Civil War era? Last week, Brian Dirk uh, found something new for us to hear about Abraham Lincoln, and this week, uh, Barbara A. Gannon, who has written *The One Cause: Black and White Comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic*, has uh, something new to say about. Uh, the veterans and the memory of the Civil War. Uh, Dr. Gannon, are you there? I'm here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. And uh, we exchanged emails and we quickly got on a first name basis. Uh, so uh, please call me Jerry if if, if, you know, if you don't mind that. No problem. I'd be very glad to. So we will. Uh, let me ask uh, about this book to start with. I I tried. When the book came out, I got notified of it by University of North Carolina Press, and it seemed interesting, and I thought it might just be another look at the pension records, which are a valuable source of Civil War information. Uh, but when I tried to learn more about it and, and track you down, I had quite a time uh, figuring out where you were uh, where you were, and what your day job was. So uh, not that anyone on the radio is stalking you, but, but where are you? Well, I'm at the University of Central Florida. I was with the federal government when I did uh, most of the research and writing. I worked for the U.S. Government Accountability Office. And then by some miracle, I got a tenure-track academic job. I think a lot of it had to do with forthcoming UNC Press on my um, CV. So I was, um, for a long time, a federal government employee trying to get an academic position. So sometimes I do seem a little elusive. Well, it, I I did find your name in connection with the the accounting office, so it, it's uh, a pleasure to know that you have landed 
uh, into academia, assuming that was your your goal. Where did you uh, where did you prepare for this? Where did you do your uh, graduate work? Well, I did my graduate work at Penn State. So the, the, with Mark was, Neely. Ah, and, and Mark has been on the show. Mark is uh, uh, Mark was my predecessor at the Lincoln Museum in, in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Oh, uh, yes, I noticed so. the Lincoln Museum, and I thought immediately of uh, Mark. He he, uh, he he set the standard there. He won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, the fate of liberty while he was working there. <clears throat> but the people who ran, who owned the museum, which was the the Lincoln Insurance Company, didn't really understand what they had in Mark Neely, and and they didn't uh, uh, cooperate with him as much as they could. So he ended up leaving. I think he went first to St. Louis University and uh, finally to Penn State. Uh, but he certainly set a high standard, high bar. The Pulitzer Prize was something I have still not quite matched. Uh, Me either. So, uh, well, but but there's always hope. So you were at Penn State. Uh, they now have the uh, Civil War Center there, I believe. Is that right? Yes. I was there when the very um, beginning of it, it began when I was affiliated with it. They had laid the groundwork. They had gotten some very wonderful alumni uh, to give money to set it up. They'd started the Du Bois lectures. They'd done all these things. And the Wichard Center was sort of the the result of all their efforts. Well, it, it's very much now one of the, the centers of Civil War scholarship and uh, a great place to be. So, uh, Well, if you should encounter uh, Mark again sometime in your at a conference or anything, please say hi to him for me. I, uh, it took it, he was elusive much as, as you were in some way it, it was very hard to get him on the show uh, I would call him every year or, or so and remind him uh, we should do an interview and uh, he he was not a friend of technology he that, that, that is he, true that is, is that still true <laughs> oh yes i would I would agree with that he he had a single dial phone on his desk uh, back in fort wayne when when the desk he had a Left when when we took uh, his place there, and uh, just just a single one line rotary phone. Uh, I knew it was rotary. I yes. knew that. So uh, anyway, uh, were you always interested in doing uh, a Civil War topic? Were you interested in the Civil War f- uh, before graduate school? Well, I mean, I was uh, a person like so many others as a child. I was very interested in the Civil War. I was also broadly interested in military history. So that was just one aspect of it. I sort of had an extremely odd trajectory, to say the least. I consider myself one of the odder trajectories. I was in high school, and I went briefly to college, and then I was in the Army for four years, and then I got out, and I ended up going to Emory University. My thought was to be more of a defense analyst, and that's exactly what I ended up being. I got a master's in security policy studies. Always in my mind there was history, as sort of an avocation, but I realized very quickly in Washington, I am not a bureaucrat. I just, I mean, I can do it. I can pretend, but it just wasn't for me. So I decided, well, let's try a Ph.D. in history and teaching. And um, so I went for it, and I left for Penn State. And I came back to Washington to research, and then I was totally, totally broke and in debt. So I went back to my old federal job while I finished the dissertation and then the book. Well, that 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 is an uh, an odd trajectory, but not not that unusual, I suppose, these days. The, certainly, the the life of 
the, the road to a tenure-track job is awfully challenging. <laughs> yes, uh, that's true. Uh, you can say that. But I think a lot of us uh, uh, share that that uh, uh, experience of of, of getting uh, what I call the history bug, where it's what you want to do, it's what you what you're called to do. One could almost say, and you can try something else. I tried practicing law. You tried uh, government bureaucracy, but sooner or later uh, it pulls you back, and you say, "This is what I really have to do," and uh, you end up doing it. So, how did you? Come upon the uh, the GAR, the Grand Army of the Republic, for a topic. Well, that was interesting. That's one of those funny history stories. I had to do a seminar paper, and I was going to do Buffalo Soldiers. I sort of had this idea of doing the non-commissioned officers. People had done them, but I hadn't liked what they'd particularly done, and I thought they hadn't focused on that. So I went to the Library of Congress, and I looked at I read black newspapers, and they wouldn't talk about Buffalo Soldiers, and I was kind of angry. I'm like, you people of the past, cooperate. All you talk about is a GAR. So I had this epiphany after this uh, research trip, and I said, you know, maybe you should write about the GAR and African Americans. Bing! So I decided, uh, I found it through sources. It had never even occurred to me to do it. Um, so that's exactly how I happened on the topic. Which, which uh, is what we're trained to do, is follow the sources. Don't, don't try to make the sources uh, tell your story. Let them tell the story and, and we follow them but it's, but it's so easy to uh, not to do that and, and uh, good to hear of an example where, where you did exactly that so the, the I mean people have written about the the GAR before uh, I think uh, Stuart McConnell comes to mind uh, um, others have, have written about it but they've typically portrayed the Grand Army of the Republic primarily as a, a political institution whose main purpose was to secure pensions for Union veterans. Uh, is there any truth to that uh, that impression of the institution? Well, yes, absolutely. I mean, that was one of their key interests. I deal with that in the book. It's, it's like this. People have talked about the GAR as a political institution, and a lot of that has to do with Mary Deering's interpretation. And he was quite right, particularly after the war. They were political in the sense of being partisan, Republican. Um, uh, they believed in the Republican Party, and they supported it. But after that initial phase, they sort of almost died, the organization, and they only reemerged in the 80s. And in the 80s, they really eschewed partisan politics. They did not eschew what we would call lobbying and interest group politics. And their interest was pensions. But they did this for a very practical reason. The number of pensions being given had dropped because people did not have the records. Also, people were still very, very sick from the war. They still had diarrhea. They still suffered greatly. And they were not, they weren't able to prove that it had, had been war related. And they were just getting old and they had been battered by their service. So yes, the GAR was a political institution and sort of its second reincarnation to the extent that any group lobbies for its interest and its members. Its members, many of whom were very sick and had no really other opportunity to survive. So, yes, the GAR was political in that sense. More like the AARP, you can say, is political. Um, they were very strong advocates of the pension, and eventually they managed to secure the service pension for all veterans who couldn't work of a, uh, in 1890. 
Well, that part of the GAR story is one that, <clears throat> if, if if listeners know anything about it, that's probably the first thing they they think of is the pension advocacy of this union veterans organization. But your book talks uh, about a part of the story that's not well known at all. We're going to take a short break and come back and talk about uh, the 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 role of race in the Grand Army of the Republic, the Union Veterans Organization. Our guest today is Barbara Gannon. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. have to stay linked to your desktop or laptop take world talk radio on the go and listen anywhere get our mobile app for iphone blackberry or android at the apple itunes app store blackberry app world or android market best-selling authors, find tantalizing new books, learn the latest healthy living tips, and be inspired to coach yourself to success on Star Style. Be the star you are every Thursday from 3 to 4 p.m. Pacific Time on World Talk Radio. The Oprah of the Airwaves, Cynthia Bryan, and her health hero daughter, Heather Brittany, fire up the airwaves with upbeat, positive, life-changing talk radio. It's the Power Hour on Star Style. Be the star you are thursdays from 3 to 4 p.m pacific on the world talk radio variety channel come play with us the world talk radio variety channel where the world comes to listen and talk. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Barbara Gannon. She's the author of The One Cause, Black and White Comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic. It's a look at the primary organization of Union Civil War veterans formed shortly after the war, but as we heard in the first segment, really uh, uh, faded away until the 1880s when it uh, re-blossomed and became a major force, uh, certainly in lobbying for pensions. But uh, Barbara, what you argue in this book that other scholars haven't looked at so much is the, the interracial quality of the GAR, uh, other scholars have observed there were black members of the GAR, but they were in separate posts, uh, separate local units for the most part. And thus, uh, the argument has been that the GAR was just another example of the the segregation and racism that, that dominated American society from the late 19th century uh, through the middle of the 20th century. What did you find that, that challenged that view? Well, it's funny. Um, it's, I can sort of go back to you know your sources issue, and where I sort of began this. When I began my um, study, I sort of assumed everyone was right. I was like, "All right, um, everyone may be right. They may be segregated. They may not like them particularly, but I really didn't care. Um, I'm really interested in what African Americans think of their involvement. So I sort of belo- be- 
began in my merry way with the idea that everyone was right. Um, so I, just, I, I started in black newspapers, and I discovered black posts, and I said, okay, that makes sense. Realized they were important. I dealt with community issues of women's involvement, sort of the first part of the book, if, uh, if you read it. African-American posts, their effect on the community, the circle of all the different um, organizations that came from the all-black veterans post. But what happened while I was doing it is I kept finding integrated posts. And at first I thought, well, okay, these are just rare. Everyone says they're rare. They said they exist. They're rare. And I said, okay, here's another rare one and here's another rare one. And I said, okay, at what point don't they become rare? So I just tripped over it in the most mundane of records, i.e. the list of what, so in the muster rolls of the posts or in the list of who died in the post. So, okay, once I said, okay, I can't really say it's fully segregated. From there, as I read the records, they kept talking about the, what the war was about. They talked about black service and how they valued their colored comrades, and they talked about how the war was about slavery. And I said, okay, I've got a bit of a source problem here. They're disputing everything everyone else says. So I just, um, from there, I just started piecing it together. After finding many, many more integrated posts than there should be, finding a great deal of rhetoric about we fought to free the slaves and it wasn't that great, I said, well, this is not what everyone says. No one has really closely, no one, uh, for example, Dr. McConnell did not look at the state records at all. I went through uh, 23 states' records. I read virtually every uh, record of every encampment, all of their speeches, and uh, I came up with a very different picture. So to put this in context, what was, were there other integrated uh, organizations in the United States in the late 19th century? No, there weren't any. I mean, there weren't even any. What's interesting is people, I try to explain to people, you know how even if they say they just had black posts and just pretend that there weren't all these hundreds of integrated posts, I've seen pictures and I have the rosters, and I know for sure they were integrated. Just pretend, okay, just say they are in their own posts. The fact that they were in their own posts, they went to the state meetings as equals, they were representatives, they were seen within the same organization that they ran for office, even if they had separate local groups, puts them far ahead of everyone else. No one else did that. People often say, well, what about the Masons? The Masons have never been the same organization. Black Masons draw their charter from an English organization. There's none. Most um, social organizations in the 19th century formally prescribed um, membership by race and prohibited African-American members. So the GAR did not prohibit this. How, how, did you, how does one form a post of the GAR? Well, that was another issue. Um, everyone acted like, well, they must have just, the GAR must have said, that is a black post and you must go there. Well, a post is only formed when a group of veterans get together and they wrote the state and said, we would like to be the John Brown post of Chicago. Here is we have all we have enough veterans, there was usually some kind of number threshold of fifteen or twenty, come send a representative from the state and certify us and give us our charter. And so the state of Illinois, for example, with Chicago would send out a person. 
he would look at their discharges, because you had to be a discharge veteran, and they say, okay, you have what you meet our qualifications, here's your charter, and they would pay a small tax to the state, and then they would come to state meetings. So it was really the community, the veterans themselves formed the post. Much as the regiments during the war were formed at, at the ground level by the yes. soldiers coming together, not not yes. by the government saying, here's here's a regiment, you guys join it. Right. So, and in this process, race is not a factor. The, the group of black veterans could form one, a mixed group could form one, a group of white veterans could form one. The state, the state, by which we mean the, the GAR's state organization, not not the government. But uh, yes, the, the state. They, they don't care. They had a term called department. You had the local post, you had the state department, and you had the national GAR. And I'm convinced that's another reason why people went uh, went wrong in the past. They focused on the national GAR, and that was a nice meeting, and there was a huge parade, and it was important. But really, most the state was more important, how the state GAR was run. And that's what I focused on that no one had ever looked at, other than, oddly enough, Mary Deering in the late 40s. Uh, I looked heavily at the state records. Did did every state in the North have uh, a GAR organization? Yes. Um, actually, when the GAR went away in the late 70s, it actually disappeared in a few states like Indiana. But after that, every state, actually every state in the South even had a GAR. Every state in the South had a GAR. There was a GAR post in Mexico and Lima, Peru, and even in Canada. And one in Hawaii later. So it was every state, including the South. Did the southern states have the same level of integration as the northern ones? No, uh, they did not. Uh, they did not. And uh, I think that was just a bridge too far, I think, for southerners. They did have African Americans in their own posts. In fact, in some cases, African Americans did very well, and like Kentucky. And Tennessee, they usually had some kind of elective office. In Louisiana and Mississippi, African Americans had the majority. They were the majority of members, and they had a number of high elective offices in the state. Georgia, South Carolina, Virginia, uh, they were substantial portions of the uh, state Grand Army of the Republic. Generally in separate polls, but there were some integrated ones. East Tennessee had a handful. Uh, my whole thing is, and this was the key to integrated post, I have to explain to people, it was a black ball system. It, it was very difficult for, socially in an area like the South to have an integrated post because if, say, 30 members vote two or three black balls and you don't get into the post. So it's so a very high me threshold. Membership is not automatic for veterans. Once no. they've formed a post, if a new veteran... You know, a veteran moves to the area or identifies himself and wants to join, the existing members have to vote him in. Yes, it's an application process. You have an application, usually sponsored by a veteran. They bring it and they have a vote, and it's an anonymous blackball system. It's the easiest thing in the world to have an all-white post. Um, and it did happen. I found incidents where it did. In some cases, though, they had this one in uh, Massachusetts, which had many integrated posts, and there were five black balls, according to a black newspaper, out of about 70. And that, of course, would kill the membership. The person did not join, but they joined another post. And the African-American became the commander of that other integrated post. 
So it's um, it's very interesting, and I, I just it's very hard to explain. It's a very high threshold, a very great honor, and I think it's astonishing that there were as many white Americans of that era who would accept African Americans, basically on a level of social equality. One of the things I found interesting in your your book was. The first, the most interesting thing is what you just said, the level to which the bonds of comradeship among veterans trumped everything, including racism, as deep as that was, so that yes. you have all these integrated posts. But that, that circle of, of fraternity, of brotherhood, uh, of comradeship doesn't extend out too far. You, many of the posts have uh, auxiliary organizations of women. And uh, both black and white posts have these, and integrated posts have these, but they don't integrate the way the the men, the actual veterans, were willing to do. It, it seems to suggest that that it was the actual experience of being a soldier that 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 only that was powerful enough to defeat racism. Um, yes, I mean, I found actually I found a couple of pictures where there might be an integrated women's relief corps that was their um, main auxiliary. Not many, though. I've, it's, there's been, and there's been enough also documentation of that white and black women's relief court did not do as well. But that's kind of the whole point of the book, mm-hmm. that it has to be something, there has to be some kind of shared identity that's rooted in something so strong it can overcome so much. And the whole point of the book is you have to get into the Civil War. You have to get your mentality. That's another, I think, thing people hadn't done before. The GAR is a product of the war and wartime's memories. You have to understand the war. The war was terrible. I mean, I don't even think, I think if I would, someone asked me what I would want at the 150th anniversary to get across how awful, ridiculously horrific the war was. So remembering this, the men who saw another, another person as someone who had done the same things as they did, it created a bond that could within this circle, overcome race. Let me, I, I want to come back to that in our third segment, but let me ask a more mundane question. What uh, What do the veterans do? I mean, literally, if they get together, they have a meeting, uh, do they do they march? Do they wear uniforms? Do they sing songs? What, what happens at a GAR post? You know what's great? I have read so many GAR records, I can recreate a meeting. Uh, okay, this is what happens. Everyone shows up, and um, there are always officers that run things, and there are committees. It's very much like a voluntary organization. The first thing they always do is they see who's sick or who might need help, and that's always very critical. It's very much charity for their comrades is always the first thing on their mind. Then the usual sort of order of business of any organization. Often they have visitors, and they um, these visitors tell stories about the war. They, um, like, they're African Americans and white. They'll visit each other's posts and they'll tell stories. They'll make plans for the future, patriotic events or campfires or social events. Um, sometimes they sing songs. Um, they definitely wear uniforms. They, GAR had its own uniform. Most of the GAR pictures you see are not union uniforms. They have their own uniform. So it was very much a voluntary organization meeting, like any you'd be at. Uh, old business, new business. But it's interesting, the very first thing they asked, and I've read enough meeting minutes to know this, who's sick, 
How are they doing? Who's visiting them? Do we have any money from the relief fund for them? Uh, something like that. So th- these are uh, fraternal, but also uh, charity, uh, charitable organizations. As you point out in the book, this is a time when there is no no social safety net really whatsoever. No gov- no government social safety net no. at all. So if they don't take care of one another, uh, nobody is going to. Well, there's the, like the first everyone, I think, and there are people quite rightly point out, the pension was the first, in some ways, the Civil War pension was the largest first step into some kind of social net. But not everyone gets it. Not everyone can prove it, but particularly before um, it, it's a service pension. But people get, it's not only about wartime injuries, it's just getting old and getting sick. And uh, the one black post I looked at, I read their meeting minutes, they just spent all these meetings, like for two years, trying to get the daughter of one of their deceased members into this specially, this very excellent orphanage in Pennsylvania they had for Civil War orphans. And um, it was just, it was the number one topic of conversation. So they had a lot of stuff to do. And that's what they focused on. And they planned, they planned like Memorial Day or they were going to march on the 4th of July and things like that. Well, this is a, a really a, a fascinating look at an organization that, that a lot of Civil War readers don't know much about or take for granted. We're going to take another short break and come back, talk more about the role of the Grand Army of the Republic and especially uh, the ways in which its members uh, remembered the Civil War and talked about it and wanted uh, the world to remember it. Our guest today is Barbara A. Gannon, author of The Wan Cause, Black and White Comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. Become our friend on Facebook. Post on our wall your thoughts about our shows and network. Visit Facebook.com forward slash World Talk Radio. Are you where you want to be in life? Are you experiencing the happiness that you're entitled to? How'd you like to improve your life and well-being? Take a weekly break to listen to Change Your Mind, Change Your Life with your hosts, Jim and Lynn Swearingen. You'll learn how hypnosis can truly help you rewrite the chapters of your life. You'll also learn to change perceptions of what hypnosis is and what it isn't. Be sure to listen every Wednesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Can you think of anybody who does not want a better life and to be a better person? Think about that for a second. Almost everyone wants to be better, but how does one go about doing that? One thing that is making people better every week is tuning in to the Self-Improvement Show with Dr. Irene Conlon. All real change comes from within, but many of us don't know where to find the information or guidance we need to make the changes that bring about the improvement. Most of us don't know how to work within. Listen Thursdays at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on World Talk Radio Variety. You're listening to the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking today with Barbara Gannon, author of The One Cause, Black and White Comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic. We've been talking about how this 
veterans organization, the veterans organization for union veterans, uh, was was integrated both within the individual posts and with, at a state level between posts of mostly or all white black member white members and then uh, some posts with all black members. But that uh, one of the things that struck me as a historian reading your book was how difficult it was for you to tease this out from the sources because the GAR didn't record the race of its members or uh, or, or designate its posts by color. Uh, so you had to find that through, uh, how did you find that? Well, um, that was, um, okay, the first way I found mixed race posts initially was they always listed at the end of every state record who died. And I was just flipping through them, you know, going through them, and I said, uh, Captain 32nd Ohio, Private, ATUSCT. Okay, they're under the same post. Okay, this must be an integrated post. Okay, that's kind of rare. I went through a bunch of records. I went, this was Ohio. No, there's another one. There's another one. You would find, you would do it mainly the key. You keyed in on rank and unit. And then I went to um, post rosters, and I one would always key in on rank. A private in the 54th Massachusetts is African-American. A lieutenant in the 8th Ohio is white. I mean, it's just, I mean, there may be, it may not be the perfect method, but it's as close as it gets. So I went through post rosters. I went through state rosters. I went through everything I can which would identify. It never identified the race. It would identify the rank and the unit. And that's why I always say I probably lowball the sailors because, they are in integrated ships, and it doesn't tell you anything. One, you said in, in our previous segment about your desire, uh, especially when teaching about this war, to to try to impart some of the horror of the war. And you make a very interesting point about language. This is in the context of the the soldiers seeking pensions for disabilities for war wounds that maybe haven't healed in twenty years. In some cases, the uh, the the point you make is that we may underestimate or, or or fail to recognize how horrible the war was because people didn't use the language that we're familiar with today, which does not spare the reader's sensibilities. Could could you talk about that? Well, that's you know that's absolutely true. Someone will say, and then the young man died beside me. He breathed his last, asking for his mother. Okay, what he's just told you is a young man of 18 died in agony and probably called for his mother with his last breath. Now, I know they might have made that sound romantic, but that was not, (laughs) there was nothing romantic about it. And many times among themselves, the veterans, even if they use nice language, they are very sentimental. I've read a number of very non-sentimental accounts. And they may, their language, what they describe is terrible. No matter, even if they say something like, he died in the dewy effervescence of youth. Or, <laughs> that's uh, still pretty bad. And my point is, the Civil War was horrible. They used language and constructions, a, a way of dealing with it. And we've just decided that that's sentimental. And so it can't be true, the facts of what they're reporting. So... But we, I mean, we use different language. Uh, uh, you, you mentioned Paul Fussell and his writing on the First World War, that 
in the Civil War, you get writing, uh, as you say, about the the youth uh, called for his mother and you know left this mortal coil. Compared to Wilfred Owen talking about the blood gargling from froth corrupted lungs, uh, you know, describing in vivid detail what it looks like to to see someone die of gas poisoning. Uh, there's, I guess, the Civil War. You have Ambrose Bierce uh, uh, delights in bringing that kind of detail to the page, but he was an outlier. He really shocks the reader with that. Well, there's a few people. If you read like Sam Watkins in Company H very closely, he doesn't hold back. As a memoir, I have I've read. I actually reviewed it of a young officer, 18 year old officer in uh, the USCT who was in the crater. He doesn't hold back at all. He is, uh, I found him in the National Tribune, the GAR's newspaper. They serialized his account of the crater, and there's nothing, <laughs> nothing sentimental about that. Um, a lot of times among themselves, they're less sentimental. But if you read what they're really saying, they'll say, our generation, we lost the greatest of our generation. There was all this suffering in the camps and prisons and hospitals. And they describe it, it may be, more sentimental than we used to. They talk about Andersonville. They're talking about all the people they know who were destroyed by the war. They talk about people who still suffer. And they often do say, and they did so in the holy name of whatever, but the truth is they're telling you what in their own terminology, with their own narrative, uh, the only way they can express it, a very terrible, horrific war. And I don't think we sometimes, because they uh, have chosen to tell their story in a way they find comfortable, that we're not comfortable with it uh, sometimes. But that was just my view. And a part of that was I had a paper, I read a paper, and someone, the commentator goes, well, isn't that just sentimental language? And I went, yeah, and? <laughs> so <laughs> it doesn't mean it's any less real. No, it it does it, it reflects the how the standards of what is acceptable or what uh, what a viewer, what a listener is willing to hear, what a speaker is willing to say have changed over time. But but that is a very interesting point that it, it draws a veil between the war and us today, uh, because we don't uh, we don't hear them using the language of twentieth century and now twenty first century veterans to describe this. You talk a little bit about. Uh, among the other things these veterans suffer from is the PTSD, the various mental disabilities. They didn't even have a language for that, did they? No, um, I had to to some extent. And I always try to be careful when I use sources. They don't, they can't say it. They can't use the terminology. They don't have uh, those words. But when they describe it, they describe their friends, they describe what happens to them. They say, and then I have this friend who can't sleep, and he's very nervous. And then you have the um, GAR surgeon saying, be very careful and note when they have um, this disease that others who have studied sort of the history of PTSD, um, things like soldier's heart or nervous asthenia, I can never pronounce it, but there's words they used that carry into even World War One, and they will use those terms about people they know. So I just speculated that given, of course, the work and shook over hell, that, that the book on it and what kind of terms they use, which I traced to what the sort of the historians of medicine say 
are the kind of terminology one used for PTSD when it didn't exist. So I found enough of it to suggest it. Uh, it's not uh, a main point, but my feeling, and I had to use some judgment on it, there was enough to support that there was something going on there that need, that they could not describe. So what, you talk about the, you know, the suffering of the soldiers, about their bonds of comradeship. Uh, I was reminded at some points reading this of, of Charles Dew's book, Bond of Iron, about uh, slave iron workers in the Shenandoah Valley who were highly skilled, so much so that they could actually set the terms under which they would be rented out by their owners to work in somebody's iron foundry because their their labor was so rare and in such high demand. And when Dew wrote that book, he he seemed to bend over backwards to avoid saying that slavery was okay. Uh, of course, nobody would think it was okay. But while he was showing that some slaves found a way to negotiate it and actually get some autonomy out of it, uh, with every description of how well they did that, he would then have to sort of take a back step and say, but of course, slavery was still bad, racism was still bad. Uh, in a sense, you're likewise challenging the accepted wisdom that the United States is entirely racist in the 19th century uh, by showing here's at least one pocket where one bond was so strong it overcame racism. Did you ever, did, did you feel swimming against the tide that you had to qualify that periodically, uh, that yes, this is still in the midst of a very racist era? Oh, yes, I, I have to do that, because people will say, and they'll go, but the 19th century is racist, and I go, and yes, you are right, but racism has many different meanings. You can't say racism, using the single word, isn't a very good analytical construct, because there are racists that hold slavery, there are racists that murder black troops at Fort Pillow. There's a racist Irishman who doesn't particularly like them, but stays in the war after the emancipation. There's a racist northerner who doesn't particularly like them, who decides slavery is wrong. There's a, there's a, there's a, um, it's a spectrum of racism. It's not, there's one, one thing and you have to acknowledge. Otherwise, if you just declare everyone racist, you don't understand race if you just say everyone's racist. So I'm just trying to explain how, yes, uh, white people in the 19th century are racist, and I want to go, and let's check in on the 21st. <laughs> let's see what kinds of racism there might be and what seems to challenge divisions based on race. What challenges it? Because it's kind of like in science. If you, all, if you, you can't just... Scientists always look at dependent and independent variables. They look at what changes things. And I looked at comradeship and veterans as a variable that changed race and people, how, both what they believe, but more importantly, how they acted. Well, you also show, though, that there's a limit to that, uh, that when we get to the end of the 19th century, uh, the era of reconciliation that David Blight has written about where, uh, white northerners and white southerners begin to share a common view of the civil war uh as not being about slavery it's one that takes the white southerners off the hook uh if the north will stop thinking about slavery the south will stop thinking about secession and everybody can go back to being one happy country except the african americans 
you point out that when that happens, when Jim Crow laws are passed, when the modern segregation era begins in the 1890s, 1900s, white GAR veterans still stand by their comrades, but they don't go to bat for them uh, in a political sense. They don't go to bat for their race. What they learned did not transmit to all African Americans, particularly African Americans who were born afterwards. Comradeship is a function of comradeship. It does not, as much as we would want it and would hope, and we always, it's just, people in the future always try to, I always say rewire the people the brains passed. Their comrades were different, and it overcame with comrades, but not with everyone else. And white soldiers did not fight for racial equality. They did not fight for that. They did not see their victory ending slavery as necessarily meaning that. So they did, it doesn't extend later to them feeling that they needed to act to um, protect either the civil or political rights of African Americans in general. Because everyone isn't a comrade. So so comradeship is powerful enough to, to trump racism, but it is specifically comradeship yes. uh, with those specific comrades. It's a... Yes. It's a, it's a fascinating argument and, and a demonstration that you you make here. The the veterans do though maintain a, a a concept of what the war was about. Getting back to your title, the Won cause, uh, they reject the lost cause argument. They they do see the war as being uh, slavery is fundamentally part of the Union cause by the end of the war. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. In fact, the strongest thing of all the things I always like about the joke, the people sometimes give me the hardest time, is the easiest thing. They say things like, we hate the lost cause, and they'll use the term. They're very aware of what's going on. We hate them. They're trying to make this war about anything but slavery. And they're very specific about this. They're not, they don't hide it. And they see themselves as in this grand contest to define what the war meant. Uh, that is absolutely, people always question that, question that sometimes with me because Dr. Blight's ideas are, are, are very popular. But really, they talk about slavery and their man's the lost cause. And they do this on and on and on. I, the stuff I have in the book are samples of a much larger debate that they are always constantly harping on. Uh, there was one point you you. You give an example of a southern uh, veterans group writes uh, looking for some assistance to northern veterans groups, and one of them appeals to uh, to a GAR post in the name of comradeship uh, across the military line. And uh, they were writing to a black post, which I know that was to... funny <laughs> because they didn't probably know. They probably just got the mailing list of all the Pennsylvania GAR posts, and it doesn't say see call. It won't. They just sent out the letter to all the posts. So here are these Confederates writing to a, a black a GAR post asking for some help in the name of comradeship. And what was the response of the, the the black soldiers? It was very understated in the memos. It just said it was tabled. <laughs> I mean, it was something like that. You know, this was just the meeting minute someone had uh, taken. It was just said it was tabled. No one had a fit, or if they did, no one recorded it. But what's interesting, if that would have gone to a white post, they might have gotten some. Um, they might have gotten out of charity. Someone might have also, many of them would have completely rejected it. 
and the GAR would have completely rejected any notion that they deserved anything from the government. Out of the goodness of their heart, some men might have given somebody, but um, it might have been rejected at many other posts also. Well, it is a fascinating story, and one of many interesting uh, stories, uh, tidbits throughout this book, uh, which which opened my eyes. I, th- I found, uh, as I said, when I first got it from UNC Press, sent it here, my thought was, uh, uh, you know, the pension records are a great place to look for, for bits of, of experience in the war, and people are starting to mine them more and more, and I, I thought this might be more of that. But it really does uncover a story that has not been told up to now, and that's an increasingly greater challenge uh, every decade to find new angles on this war. Uh, but to tell us something more about uh, about who who the veterans were and and uh, uh, what kind of country we are as a result. So uh, I think the listeners will do well to pick up a copy of The One Cause and learn about black and white comradeship in the Grand Army of the Republic. Uh, Barbara, thank you so much for being on the show today. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated it. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the world talk radio network for more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest please visit worldtalkradio.com the world talk radio network where the world comes to talk the views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the world talk radio network its staff and management